0: So we finally finished the cosmology that we find in Genesis 1 and 2, which is the origin story of our universe. And we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 this self-existent God who is all-powerful and all-good, who has no beginning and no end, create the universe by divine fiat. With the use of language, God brings all of time and space Into being. And the grand finale of the creation is the intimate making of human beings in the image of this great God. And uh, the human beings are tasked with the ruling over of God's creation as the kings and queens who are representing God through their exercise of delegated authority. This first man and this first woman that are placed in the Garden of Eden are tasked specifically to work the garden and to keep it. And uh, part of that is procreation, the making and raising of more image bearers. And then part of that is administration, the overseeing of uh, the created order. But the question is, what happened? We read Genesis 1 and 2 and we see... This like uh, utopia, Um, God uh, creating this beautiful world of goodness and truth and and beauty. But this isn't the cosmos that we experience. I mean, on one hand, it does, right? In the natural world, there are animals and mountains and rivers and oceans. And even the results of much of what humanity does in crafting the natural things into things like art and music and dancing and helpful technology and tacos and cold brew. I mean, I was at the coffee festival this past weekend and the human beings were doing something amazing with these brown beans that were uh, being soaked in water. But it it also doesn't uh, match what we experience in the cosmos Uh, There's destructive weather events and invasive species and infectious disease and mosquitoes in the natural world and the destructive results of humanity's manipulation of the natural world like pollution and extinction and suburban sprawl and, and wars. So on one hand, things are the amazing cosmos described in Genesis 1 and 2 and on the other hand, they're not. And again, the question is, what happened? And Genesis chapters 1 through 3 really give us answers to both. What is uh, like that uh, created cosmos, but why we're experiencing things that are not consistent with what is good and true and beautiful. An important part of why things are not comprehensively good and true and beautiful in our world is because of what happens with a certain tree. So let's talk about trees for a minute. Trees are amazing. Trees are beautiful. They have branches and leaves, and even some have flowers. Trees provide shade. They provide lumber to build things like houses and furniture. They can be burned as fuel for warmth and cooking. They can be used to make paper. They can be used to make rubber. They can provide food like fruits and nuts and maple syrup. They can provide oxygen for us to breathe. They can filter out carbon dioxide and other pollutants. They can provide protection from erosion through their root systems. They can provide homes for birds and other animals. I mean, some can live over a thousand years. If you've ever been to the Redwoods near the Golden Gate Bridge, these trees were over a thousand years old. And you can climb them. I mean, I spent a lot of time when I was growing up uh, in a tree. There was a big hackberry, not a great tree, but this big hackberry out in our pasture where I grew up that I spent hours in. And they play a major part in the unfolding story of Genesis. And I think it does make sense that in a purely natural world, that trees would be prominent in the landscape and prominent in the story. Everyone loves trees. We heard about a couple of trees back in Genesis 2 when we looked at that last week. So Genesis 2, 9 says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So just it's like a brief mention in Genesis 2 of these two trees. And then in Genesis 2, verse 16, The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. These trees create a kind of laboratory uh, for these human beings to understand the character of God and the terms of the relationship that they have with him. But everything God has created is good, right? The entire cosmos is very good, Um And that human beings themselves are good and have been placed in a lush garden by a good God. And that uh, part of the goodness of this lush garden and this beautiful uh, ordered cosmos is that there is a good authority that is over all of it. This is God who is obviously rightly the authority over all things because he made all things. And so as an authority, he gives commands, and those commands themselves are blessings. And so he he blessed them back in Genesis 1. He blessed them and he said to them. So his commandments work as, as a blessing uh, for uh, his uh, human beings that he's created. And these commandments uh, work as uh, an interplay between both prohibition and permission that his prohibitions are always protecting the permission to enjoy something else so think about some of the ten commandments so there's a prohibition that says thou shalt not lie but that prohibition is actually protecting truth telling like you can't have a society where there's both lying and truth telling you have to prohibit lying and that permits a society of truth telling or thou shalt not commit adultery right it protects marriage uh, you can't have marriage and then have sex with anybody you feel like having sex with, right? Like there's an interplay between the prohibition against adultery, which gives permission to experience uh, the covenant uh, of marriage. And these two trees really represent this idea of prohibition and permission. So what is the tree of life? So the tree of life is obviously the permission part of God's commands. You have access to this tree. This tree provides life, which is in contrast to the other tree, which is, uh, it's going to provide death, right? So again, we might think, well, why can't I just have absolute freedom where I can just eat from both trees? Well, you you can't do that. you You can't eat from life and eat from death. And again, this theme will run throughout all of scripture, but here's a part of a scripture that will reiterate this in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So chapter 30, verse 18, it says, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you were going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. That you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So you see this laying, bringing forth by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy of choose life, don't choose death. These are an interplay of uh, prohibition and uh, permission. So what is the meaning of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Is it saying that the woman and the man don't know right from wrong? Well, it can't be that because uh, they know that it's wrong to eat from this tree and the woman is going to say that to uh, the serpent. So it, it means more than just knowing in terms of knowledge, right? Uh, knowledge in the Bible is a more holistic concept, meaning it's more than just intellectual understanding. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. So think of it this way. It's one thing to say I know about Austin because I've done a couple of Google searches about the city versus I know Austin. Like I know the side streets and neighborhood cafes, uh, the the, the -the out-of-the-way parks. Um, It's different when you can say I'm on a first base, you know, basis name basis with the wait staff at a particular cafe. So we like to go to Nate's Baked Goods and Coffee which is um on Orchard just off of 5th Street. And it's just little dive, there's the parking's horrible. Uh, it's you'd probably not go in there if if uh, you didn't know that it was good in there, but the owner Susan does all the baking. And so you walk in and you can just smell this fresh baked goods, you know, wafting from the kitchen. The staff is really, really kind, and it's really delicious, and we go there every Friday because it's it's so amazing, right? That That's more knowing the city, not just knowing about Austin uh, from a few Google searches. Or you might say uh, it's more like knowing about a person versus knowing a person, right? Knowing about the president of the United States or knowing about Taylor Swift or knowing about Matthew McConaughey versus laughing and crying and playing and working with your best friend. Um, later in the, in the passage, uh, we'll see in Genesis, Adam's, it says Adam knew his wife. And it's talking about the sexual union between uh, Adam and Eve. That's the kind of knowing, this intimate knowing that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, is displaying. And, and so uh, this is, again, not just knowing right from wrong, but tasting, consuming, experiencing evil. They, they had not done that. Yet they knew good, and they they knew that they shouldn't do certain things, but they had not tasted, consumed, experienced evil. And of course, this is what indeed happens in Genesis 3. So let's take a look at Genesis 3, starting here with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So we have this serpent that uh, appears... In Genesis 3, it's the first introduction of an alternative voice in the garden. Uh, up to this point, there's been no in- indicator of anything hostile in the created order, nothing that's uh, in opposition against God. There's a lot of mystery here. I don't claim to understand it all. Uh, but what we see is that Adam and Eve were born into a world at war. There is actually an opposing voice that is uh, over and against or at least against God, not over God, but against uh, God. And why is he there? Why did God allow the serpent? Uh, why did he allow Satan to tempt the humans? A hundred other questions we could ask at this point, but at this point in the unfolding story of humanity, we aren't really given any of those answers. Uh, we just are are being introduced to this serpent, which we understand to be more than just a, a snake, but actually Satan, a supernatural being who is tempting Uh, human beings in the garden of Eden. And again, a lot of mystery here, but at the very least we see God allowing humans to choose between these two trees and between these two voices in the garden. They, They have God and then they have an alternative. And so the serpent has this to say to the woman regarding an alternative voice. He says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So what we see is this uh, the, the, this alternative voice twisting the words of God. He's accentuating God's prohibition, uh, saying, "You did he say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, this has been done for millennia, making God out to be some kind of tight-fisted miser who's trying to keep all the good from the human beings. Now, we know from Genesis 1 and 2 that God is a generous and good God he blesses his creation he shows favor towards his creation especially towards human beings and so again this is continuing to happen this popular twisting of god's words today that god is uh, that the god of the bible is anti-woman or anti-sex or anti-healthy self-worth or anti you know fill in the blank um, and what these voices are really upset about is that there is any kind of prohibition at all. Like, how dare God put some kind of restraint on my self-expression? But of course, none of us really believe that there shouldn't be any prohibitions, right? Uh, when when we lived in Massachusetts, right there on the edge of the campus there, the, uh, the University of Massachusetts, the, I would always just kind of get a kick out of the sign as I would go by because it would always say this is a tobacco-free campus, right there on the campus sign. And I thought of all the things that you could prohibit um, and and all the things that you permit, this is what you put on your sign. You shall not smoke or inhale tobacco. Um, Now, I get why they have the prohibition that there's no tobacco on the campus, because if you want to have the permission to have a smoke-free campus, and smoke-free air, then you're going to have to prohibit the use of tobacco. It's just just how it goes. It's just the nature of the prohibition and the permission. So all of us believe there should be some prohibitions. We're just in disagreement about what those prohibitions should be. But again, God is giving these prohibitions to protect the beautiful, life-giving society, uh, human interaction, created order that he has put in uh, to place. And again, this is one of Satan's schemes to exaggerate God's prohibition to the point that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, the woman seems pretty savvy to this trick, right? Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The woman corrects the serpent, which seems like a good move, right? She says that God has given us a small prohibition and a large permission. His permission is expansive, and we can eat of all the trees in the garden except this one, the the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, She makes it clear also that there are consequences for eating from the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. And she says, we will surely, quote, die, die, um, or be condemned to die. And I talked about this last week in Genesis 2, when God gives uh, the instructions uh, to the human beings that they are to not eat from this tree, or they will experience um, a condemnation. They will experience, they will be doomed to die. And so it's more than just hey, this is like a poisonous tree and you'll physically die, but that you will experience a cosmic condemnation, right? And and so she is letting Satan know, the serpent, uh, if we eat of this, this is what's going to happen. Now that all is good, but then she does one thing that's not good, and that's she misquotes God. She says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And she says that God said this. Um, And again, first glance, it seems like a good idea, right? Like she's saying, I I don't want to touch this because I I can't eat it. And if I eat it, I'll die. So I'm just adding a rule to it and saying, God said it. God said, don't touch it. But God didn't say, don't touch it. Um, She's adding her own words. And so with respect to God's words, she's starting to slip. And it won't be long before she's ready to throw God's words out altogether. God's words matter. Uh, the words he speaks, the words that he has superintended to be written down from him, these matter. And and so Genesis is part of a five-book series known as the, the Torah or the Books of Moses. And we understand that Moses wrote these down. These, these were the words of God written down by Moses. And we see that in places like Exodus 24, Starting with verse 3, Moses came, he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Getting God's words right really matters. This is why Moses is writing them down and then reading them to the people. This is why we read the Bible. This is why when we're having our Sunday service, we're standing in honor of God's word, and and we're saying, "This is the word of the Lord." And you're saying, "Thanks be to God." And we read and we re-read His words. God's words matter, and we we can't play fast and loose with God's words. But this is exactly what the woman does. Uh, The serpent sees an opportunity in this to deceive this human being because she is playing fast and loose with his words. So verse 4, the serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die, die. Literally same construction uh, in terms of the, the grammar. And then, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent continues to twist God's words. This is is why the the woman, and, and then later the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2 will describe what's happening here as the woman being deceived. Satan is twisting the truth into a deceptive falsehood. He's saying to her, you will not die, die, but you will be like God. Now this is very deceptive because the woman already is like God. She is an image bearer of God. But Satan, again, is depicting God as a miserly killjoy who's holding out on human beings, that he's keeping the best stuff for himself. He's leaving them only with the crumbs. And if they would only eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then They would know good and evil, just like God, right? In the words of D.A. Carson, they would be able to de-God, God, and become God themselves. You can tangibly feel the potential for the unraveling of the created order right before your eyes. A cosmic mutiny where humans try to take over the cosmos and throw their captain, God, off the ship. But, of course, the woman and the man know better, right? They know the words of God. They, they, they certainly, they trust these words 100%. I mean, how could they take the word of this alternative voice over and against the voice of the one who is self-existent and all-powerful and all-good and all-loving, who has no beginning and no end, who's blessed them and said to them with commands that are blessings. And yet, here's what the humans do. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The woman goes with her gut, which has been influenced by the serpent. Again, this is also one of Satan's schemes not just twisting words of God, but also finding a vulnerability in a human that he can exploit. The human has been adding her own thoughts to God's word and is now vulnerable to rejecting that word outright and conforming her thoughts uh, or conforming her life to her own thoughts. She doesn't stop and go back to the infallible word of her creator. Nor does Adam stop her from doing so. It would have been a great day as as a husband to have stepped up and just said in this moment, hey, hold up. We know that God and his word can be trusted. Don't don't trust this stupid, deceptive serpent, right? There, There is an irony here. The man and woman who are supposed to be ruling over the animals, and instead an animal, certainly animated by an unseen force, is about to rule over them. And instead of going back to God's word, she goes with what seems good and beautiful and true. She sees it and it looks good for food. She she sees it and looks really beautiful. And she also sees it as something that will open herself up to truth that she doesn't currently have uh, that God must be holding out on her. I mean, goodness and truth and beauty are things that every human is longing for. And and who that we need, right, to thrive. And up to this point, God has given the two humans all three of these things in mass quantities. Um, all advertising is really built on this longing of goodness and truth, and and beauty. Um, this, this is one of my favorite examples of this. is really an old Coke ad that's from the seventies, but it was the very beginning of when, when soda was really taking. Root here in in the states, and the uh, the ad says you know have a Coke and a smile, and that Coke is quote real life. Um, I mean, I guess I ate caramel colored corn syrup that it will eventually be the major contributor to obesity in America and also to diabetes. I mean. It's a sham, right? It, it, it's portraying that it's giving you something good and beautiful and true, but it's a complete sham. And, and so this is what the serpent is offering the, the woman and, and eventually the man. And they seem discontent with the goodness and truth and beauty that God has given them. And so they eat. And then here's what happens. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. They don't die physically, not at, not at least at that moment, but they do experience something they never had before. And it's not life-giving nirvana of truth, goodness, and beauty. It's shame. It's shame. Remember the last verse in Genesis 2, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's a, That's a set up to help us understand what's happening in this moment in Genesis 3. They seem to be experiencing some kind of body dysmorphia, which is being uncomfortable or ashamed or hate-filled regarding one's body. But why are they feeling this shame all of a sudden? Well, because shame always accompanies guilt. Guilt is what humans are hardwired to experience when they do something wrong. But it's not only guilt it's it's also the experience of the residual uncleanness or the inherent badness that you feel about yourself because you've done something that you're guilty of and so there's both guilt and shame those things are always coupled together and honestly these work somewhat like pain receptors right like like you're built to to feel guilt and shame whenever you do something that is against god and it and it helps point out bad behavior but not only bad behavior, a bad identity. And the man and the woman experience guilt and shame for the first time, and consequently they want to cover themselves up. This is the first glimpse of the promised consequence of death that God told them about in Genesis 2. Now death, as the Bible reveals it to be, is a separation or a disintegration. Things that were once integrated in this case, the sense of self and their body are now being disintegrated. They're now in their sense of self feeling shame because of the thing that's, that that they've done. Um, and, and so they are literally experiencing a death in their relationship with themselves. Again, it's kind of a body dysmorphia uh, where they're feeling distress over their naked bodies or... Uh, Also akin to gender dysphoria, right? My my sense of self as a male or female being incongruent with my body. And we can all relate to this to some degree. And honestly, our Western culture, especially white American culture, tries to deal with guilt and shame like with with, with therapy. Trying to convince us that guilt's not a thing and that shame's not a thing and that you just, just try to forget about it. Um, but the problem is, even though we live in this therapeutic society, uh, anxiety, depression, many of these kinds of, of mental experiences in our sense of self are, are just getting more prominent, not less prominent, as we try to tell each other that guilt and shame aren't a thing. And what's happening here is, is that more is going on here than some sort of a body dysmorphia disorder or anxiety disorder. There's a sense of shame That's deeply embedded in the self due to an awareness of guilt for sin. And again, like a pain receptor, it's allowing us to know there's something wrong and to then seek out a remedy, which, of course, is God, which God shows up in verse 8. Now, what is this holy, self-existent, all-powerful, all-knowing God going to do, right? Verse 8, we find out. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now we're not just seeing a death or disintegration in Adam and Eve's relationship with themselves, but now they're experiencing a death or disintegration in their relationship with God. They're hiding from God. And I think this is the first time they've ever hid from God. And God asked them, or God, as God moves into uh, the garden, they 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 hide. And so what does God do? Verse nine, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Um, this is really profound, right? God is moving toward human beings that have sinned against him. Obviously, he knows that this has happened. And now he asks this very profound question, where are you? Because before that point, I'm fairly certain that the man and the woman, their location was always with God. Like whenever God was there in the garden with them, they were with God. They were receiving God's blessings and commands and and gifts. And every day uh, for that man up to that point uh, had been centered on God. And it had been satisfying and it had been full of joy. And so that's where they've been up to this point. But now they were hiding from the presence of God. And so God asks this question, where are you? And then the man answers, like a little kid who's, who's been caught doing something that he shouldn't. Verse 10, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Again, it's similar to a little kid who's, who gets caught doing something they shouldn't. They have cookie crumbs all down their shirt. The parent asks them, what are, what are you doing? And uh, the, the, the kid's like, oh, no, nothing, I'm just reading a book here in the kitchen next to the cookie jar. And... And so it's bad enough that they did this thing, but now they're compounding it by lying about it. And God, in his patience, asked another question. He says, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And so God continues this uh, exploratory conversation where he's asking now, who told you that you were naked and did you eat the cookie from the cookie jar and Adam knows he's caught. And so, what's next, right? He could come clean, he could confess his sin, but no, he doesn't do that. He blame shifts. Verse 12 the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. They both end up blame shifting. Adam blames both God and the woman. He says, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, God, that if you never would have given me this woman, I wouldn't have sinned. it's your fault, God. And then if it's not your fault, it's her fault. And so we see this death, not only in a relationship with themselves and again, being confirmed this relationship with God, but also between uh, the man and the woman, right? He's he's not uh, writing poetry about the woman like he was in chapter two, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. Uh, He's saying, she made me do it. And of course, the woman's first recorded words here is the serpent deceived me and I ate. Then next week, we'll look at the back half of chapter three, which gives us a little more of a comprehensive understanding of the results uh, of this rupture between human beings and God. But we can at least get at the basics of what has happened. So what has happened, right? What what has made this perfectly ordered chaos our perfectly ordered cosmos into what it is today, which is, yes, created, but also decreated. And two things that I want to draw out of this passage. So one is that human beings broke God's rules, which ultimately broke relationship with God. I'll say it again. Human beings broke God's rules, which ultimately broke relationship with God. So the root of this rupture is not believing that... Believing God's word, that God's word about what is good, true, and beautiful, right? And instead believing alternative voices over and against God about what's good and true and beautiful. And that it's not just a breaking of rules, but it's a breaking of relationship. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, especially, um, breaking the, the rules of God, worshiping other gods is likened to adultery in a marriage, and I think this is helpful be, because when you commit adultery against your spouse, you're not just breaking a rule. You're breaking relationship. And so you don't say to your spouse, you know, why are you such a legalist? I mean, yeah, I, I slept around on you, but who cares? You know, you, you're so uptight about rules and I just broke a rule. Well, it's more than just breaking a rule. It's breaking uh, relationship. And so this is the first thing about what happened is that humans broke rules, but also— Ultimately, that was a breaking of relationship, and that is part of the death that God spoke of in Genesis 2 would occur if they ate from the knowledge of the the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The second thing is that, that the the consequences of breaking of that relationship places humans under just condemnation right it, it is right and just for God to put them under condemnation or to. Uh, follow through with what he said would happen. He told him what would happen, you would, quote, die, die, right? You would be condemned to die, cosmically condemned. And now because they've broken the rules, broken the relationship, they are now under this cosmic uh, justice. And this initial rupture in Genesis 3 has massive implications for the rest of humanity. And And we'll talk about that next week. But, but this also... Uh, has implications for our own personal stories, right? We have all broken God's rules, which means we've broken relationship with God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, all have sinned, right? fallen short of the glory of God. We've all broken God's standard, His rules, and that is a breaking of relationship. And and so we don't just know about sin, we know Sin. We've tasted sin. We've experienced sin. We have gone headlong into sin. And consequently, we are also, number two, worthy of just condemnation of God's wrath for that sin. Uh, Romans 6.23, the first phrase of that says, for the wages of sin is death. It's not just that that was true for Adam and Eve in the garden. It's true for any human being who sins against a holy God, that they're worthy of just condemnation. They're worthy of that holistic understanding of death. So in light of that, what are humans to do? What can we do to fix it? What can we do to fix the rupture? Nothing. We can do nothing. We are completely helpless to fix the rupture. Um, Other religions don't understand this. So the very word religion means to relig, to religament, reconnect human beings with God. All religions have a, a sense that we're separated from God and they're trying to relig humans with God. And they're going to either do that through following rules or rituals um, or some kind of mystical experiences. And uh, this, is, this is the effort of human beings to relig and it doesn't work we cannot reconnect ourselves in our own strength to god it's going to require another tree to get us out of this uh, paul writes to the galatians in chapter 3 verse 13 christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree the tree of the cross of Christ is a tree of both death and life. It's death for Jesus and life for those who receive that life given to us by, by Christ. Uh, and so what we see in Romans 6.23, again, I read the first part, for the wages of sin is death. The second part reads like this, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ has died for us on that tree in order to remove our guilt and our shame. That means he's he's not only paying the penalty of our wrong action, but he's cleansing us from the uncleanness of being a wrong person. He's giving us a new identity of, of, of being his, his son, his daughter, by grace and through faith. So if... if if you know what I'm talking about, if, if if you're listening to this and you're thinking I I do have guilt, I do have shame, I don't know what to do with it. I've gone to a therapist, I've taken medications, I, I'm I'm trying to convince myself that I shouldn't feel this this way, but I do. I I want you to know there is a remedy, and the remedy is Christ and Christ's death on the cross paying for the penalty of the sins that you've committed but not only that uh, cleansing you from the uncleanness of being a sinner he saves you from sin he saves you from being a sinner the the $10 theological words are he provides both a propitiation that is he dies in your place to take on the wrath or the the, the just penalty and condemnation that you deserve but he also provides expiation. He cleanses you from the uncleanness that sin leaves behind, the identity of being a sinner that is taken away and is replaced with the identity of son or daughter of the Father through Christ. And so if you've not yet received that gift, I want to encourage you to receive that today by faith. I also, if you are a Christian, I want you to be reminded (laughs) of receiving that, and that that is your true identity. You have been forgiven of your guilt. You have been cleansed from your shame. And we oftentimes default back to uh, wrong thinking, right? We, we start to even think that God, perhaps, is, is saying things that are really more our thoughts than truly the Word of God. And so we, like Eve, are... are in need of a reminder to go back again and again and again to what does God's word, what are are God's words really? And to be reminded in the scriptures and in the preaching of the scriptures this morning. And so I want to send you out that you who through Christ's tree have been saved from death and given life. Now go in that new life and Invite others to take and to eat.